Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, an open SSL flaw for you to know about cybersecurity firm Norse implodes, and the Windows hot potato flaw that's been around for over a decade, plus a whole bunch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 4th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Over at ScaleEngine.com, you should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Why, yes, it's Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. I'm like super pumped up this week for today's episode because mm -hmm. of two reasons. Number one, I'm just looking at the doc, eight pages long, that is a ridiculous show doc, Alan. Yep. Eight pages long worth of notes for today's episode. Huge show. So first of all, that's awesome. Plus, you just get, got back from a trip, uh, which I haven't heard how it went. So where'd you go, and how long you been back, and how did it go? All those in one. Right. So uh, I was at FOSDEM, the uh, free open source software um, developers European meeting. Yeah. Uh, which is basically a giant conference. Like you said, scale is like pretty big, right? Mm-hmm. It's more than double that size. Really? Yeah, there I wanted. I wish I could 5, go. Five thousand developers. Wow. Yeah, and you know, I yeah. saw some announcements come out of there, which looked pretty yep. cool. Uh, the other interesting things about Fosdem is there's no registration at all. Like, oh, that's it's nice. Completely free, but Just they don't up. even they don't even want a list of the people that showed up. Partly, I think, because fire code says they're not actually allowed to put that many people in the building. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, you know, you could just show up and and hang out and do whatever, right? Uh, part of it is, you know, there's um, some people take the free software thing to the extreme of, you know, I privacy. don't want any, the private. Yeah. I don't yeah. want anybody to know that I was there, and so on. You enjoyed it? Uh, yes, I enjoyed it quite well. Um, I missed most of the stuff on the Saturday, the first day of the conference, um, because we decided at the last minute to do it. Uh, we uh, people's flights and so on were already set, so. The FreeBSD Developer Summit was on the Saturday instead of the Friday before the conference, and so it overlapped, uh, which mm. had, in addition to you know me missing most of the stuff that happened on Saturday, mm. it also meant that uh, for the FreeBSD Dev Summit that a bunch of people had to only show up for the morning or only the afternoon in order to do uh, something they had to do at FOSDEM or you know see another talk or meet with certain people or give a talk or whatever. Uh, so. We'll do it better next year, but so it sounds like uh, Fosdem is a good one to go to. I think Scale is yes. a good one to go to as well. They're both mm -hmm. really great events. So yeah, uh, <laughs> they both happen to be very close to each other. Every yeah, year, no which kidding. Makes it slightly difficult. You're telling me. Uh, yeah. You know, fly three time zones that way. Go to Scale. Fly home for a couple days. Yep. Or at one point, I swear it looked like I would have to. I would be home for like one day in between, uh, and then fly to. Uh, oh man. Six, five or six time zones the opposite direction. Want to talk about jet lag? Yeah, Jesus. yeah, and all of it still, and then all of it just makes me exhausted. And then Linux Fest is in April, which is just around the corner now. So now we're starting to plan on that one. But I'm really sad that I will miss that. I know. So are we? We're majorly bummed. I yeah, know. I know. You got stuff going on. That's how it goes. Yeah, I will be in Germany doing uh, 
the FreeBSD hackathon followed yeah. by the Open Source Data Center Conference. You know, the real bummer is, the big bummer is it means we'll miss our annual in-studio episode. That'll be the... Well, the, the anniversary best. happens actually because of the numbers slide a little bit. It means the anniversary will be basically a while after or something. I yeah. don't know. Uh, it turns hmm. out that it, it might be possible to still have an anniversary episode. Hmm. It would just be... That'd be fun. You know, un outside of the craziness that is... So yeah, uh, fests and fest. cons and all that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool. You know, there's definitely look forward to uh, having them happen at the same time. And it's too bad that the schedule didn't work out this year. Yeah, and so uh, we so we haven't missed a beat, even though we were both uh, of us were traveling for the last few weeks. We had a feedback uh, special last week, which I hope people liked. That was something new we tried. Uh, we'd love feedback on that. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But I guess what I didn't mention is the whole second day at Fosdem. So on the oh, second yeah. day, I actually did the, the Sunday at Fosdem. We went there, and there was uh, the BSD developer room. Uh, so there was talks from all the different BSDs, including some of the smaller ones like Edge BSD and Electro BSD. Mm. Um, and it was just great to have developers from all the projects in the room and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the people that don't always make it all the way over to uh, Canada and so on for BSD yeah. camp. Oh, for sure, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was quite good. Um, and then uh, I gave a talk. Uh, oh, how'd that go? I was, uh, originally, uh, I was on the schedule, but then the there was a miscommunication about the ending time, and so... The room had to be, we had to be finished with the room by 5 o'clock instead of 6 o'clock, so they had to Whoa. cut a talk. Oh. And so they cut mine. Oh. But then somebody canceled, so they stuck mine back in. <laughs> oh, geez. On and off, on and off. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I only submitted it to the dev room when it didn't get accepted by the main track at Fosdem. Huh. Uh, although, you know, the main track at Fosdem is, is a, a, you know, a giant stadium, basically. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's, like a keynote room almost? Yeah, is it, basically it is keynote room, mm -hmm. and it's meant to hold a couple thousand people. So mm -hmm. I don't know that my ZFS talk would have filled that properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for the BSD dev room, it overflowed the room, and they had to stop allowing more people in. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did you uh, happen to get video of it? They were taking video, but there might, may or may not have been problems with the audio. I don't know yet. Man, that was a huge uh, issue with scale. Know, the live stream were complaining about audio. Yeah, Scales audio had a horrible buzz and just crackles oh, well, and pops. This one, I think, was just a, a dead battery and no replacement battery or something because the battery packs. Not if we had more battery. time, I'd love for JB to go in there and just say, "Let us handle the live streaming." We we send it off to Scale Engine. We get down there with a mixer and you know, we we could do the whole thing for him in one package. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd love for you to come do that to BSD Can. <laughs> I uh, know the problem with BSD Can is that there are three concurrent talks at every time yeah. on the schedule. Yeah, yeah. you'd so almost you have to have like a... teams of people. You'd have to have a totally dedicated live page where people could choose their track, right? Don't you think? Right, well, so so uh, there's, we have that on you know, BSD Can's uh, website. It's hmm. just a matter of you need three sets of everything, right? You need three cameras with operators. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and three yep. encoders and mixers and all mm -hmm. the stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, although you can use, you know... But there's only one mic, it, you don't really need a mixer necessarily. That or you make the hard choice of which one is live. Yeah. Uh, so for for the presentations, it's not so bad usually because it's just a speaker talking for 45 minutes or whatever. Although if you try to do the working groups at like uh, the Dev Summit, the two days before BSD can actually officially starts, um, then you're looking at 
you know, with a working group, then you need like an active camera person that's like panning yes. all over. Yes, yes, you would. Yes, and you obviously, would. doing audio is very difficult because yes. you'd have to have you'd have forty to have a, people in the room and they're yeah. not all mic'd up. You'd have to have a runner with a mic, basically, or something. And yeah. and you don't want to break the flow of conversation by making everybody wait for the runner with the mic. And one of the things we did uh, before is we just had people. We had like three mics set up, and if when you wanted to ask a question, you just got up and walked up to the mic. Yeah, uh, although in a working group, it's not necessarily. Yeah. You know, sometimes it is like that, but yeah. sometimes it's more. Yep. Let's have a conversation of the twenty of us actually tossing out ideas and so. On. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so that's down the road, future stuff. So it sounds like your talk went pretty good. Then it was pretty popular, yep. pretty busy. That's nice. That's nice. Uh, I would love to be able to make it to Fosdem. Personally, I feel it wasn't as good as the version I gave at VBSDCon of the same talk. Mm. But I don't know if the room noticed. Well, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they don't know, right? <laughs> They don't know, so they just like it, whatever they get. Uh, cool, Alan. Well, it's good to hear a report. I was, I knew, I could tell it was a good conference by some of the names I saw going and and some of the reports I saw coming out. And some of, the, I even saw some projects launched from there. So, yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah. All right. So speaking of interesting stuff, OpenSSL has another exploit. I thought this wasn't a big deal. I don't know what's going on, Alan. Tell me about this. Inform me of the situation, sir. Right. So um, this is. January 28th or so it came out. The, they gave us a couple days heads up telling us it was coming, but not what it was. Yeah. Um, so they have their official writer here, but they released uh, OpenSSL version 102F and 101R to fix these. Uh, the first issue actually only affected 102, not 101. Uh, it was called the DH small subgroups uh, and is classified as high severity. And they say, uh, historically, OpenSSL... Uh, usually only ever generated Diffie-Hellman parameters based on safe prime numbers. Uh, more recently, in version 102, support was added for generating X9.42 style parameter files, uh, such as those required by RFC 5114. Uh, the primes used in such files may not be safe. So mm. uh, if you provide OpenSSL with an input file telling it how to generate the key, it m does exactly what it says and could end up doing something less good. Uh, the primes used in such files may not be safe. Uh, where an application is using DH configured with parameters based on primes that are not safe, an attacker could use uh, this fact to find the peer's private uh, Diffie-Hellman exponent, mm. and then they could possibly decrypt the graphic. They say, uh, OpenSSL provides the option SSL op single DH use for ephemeral uh, DH or DHE uh, in TLS. Um, it is not on by default. Uh, if the option is not set, uh, then the server reuses the same private DH exponent uh, for the life of the server process and will be vulnerable to this attack. So they have some mitigation for it, but it's not on by default in the older versions. Okay. Uh, it is believed that many popular applications do set this option and would therefore not be at risk. But they don't list which applications so that people could actually figure out how many actually do and which ones don't and so on. But It'd be hard to make a full list too, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely not full list, but if they're talking about popular applications, it's like, well, is Apache vulnerable or not? This is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yes, that would be a good one. You know, some of those, some yeah. big ones. <laughs> uh, they say uh, OpenSSL 101 is not affected by the CVE because it doesn't have the new feature that caused the problem. Uh, then there's a second issue with uh, SSL v2 doesn't block disabled ciphers. Uh, and this is classified as low severity, but might actually be worse than that. Uh, so they say a malicious client can negotiate SSL v2 ciphers 
uh, that have been disabled on the server and uh, complete an SSL v2 handshake even if all SSL v2 ciphers have been disabled. Uh, provided that the SSL v2 protocol has not been disabled by setting SSL op no SSL v2. So if your server disables all the SSL v2 ciphers, you know how you, uh, if you follow that guide from Mozilla that we've talked about before, mm -hmm. you, you basically disable all the ciphers you don't want to use. So even if you disable all the ones that are valid in SSL v2, if you don't have a separate line that uh, dictates which versions of the protocol you can use that has uh, SSL v2 off, then the user could still negotiate that. Uh, now, while that, you know, is, well, if the user is being malicious and is going to negotiate bad encryption, what's the big deal? Uh, the bigger problem is a man in the middle might be able to trick the client into downgrading. Right? And then they're using weak encryption that's breakable. Sounds very likely. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third issue is actually just an update to the old logjam thing. Uh, so... Uh, if you're using uh, too short of a Diffie-Hellman parameter, then you know you could get the the logjam attack that we talked about before. So in when that was fixed back in uh, OpenSSL 102b or 101n, uh, they basically set the uh, OpenSSL wouldn't accept any connection if the DH parameters were less than 768 bits. Uh, but as of this update, they increased uh, the limit. So you have to be at least 1024 or higher. Uh, so basically, they slowly phased in this change to give people enough time to hmm. uh, update things. Hmm. Uh, and then lastly, they just have a reminder here that uh, OpenSSL version 101 will stop being supported on December 31st of 2016. And that obviously... Uh, OpenSSL version 098 and 100 uh, ended support December 31st of 2015, so are already out of support and will no longer receive security updates. So, you know, if you're still using those versions, you should definitely watch out. Do you know if uh, things like Boring SSL uh, are affected by this too? Is like, are the forks? I don't also know about Boring in particular. Um, for the SSLv2 thing. LibreSSL, I'm pretty sure, is not affected because they completely ripped out all the SSL v2 code, so it's just not even possible. Uh, although, I, and I, because of when uh, LibreSSL forked, they're still based on 101, I think. And so the feature that caused the, this, the top one there, uh, the DH small groups, hmm. that feature never made it into LibreSSL to yeah. be the problem. Uh, and so it turns out that the Two of the three don't apply. And the third SSL, one isn't really yeah. a problem. It's just SSL announcing. As part of this update, we also uh, have been ratcheting up the uh, huh. the security requirements for Diffie Hellman. I'm looking. I was trying to see if I could find something. It looks like something from a couple of months back that Boring SSL was working on this. I don't know. This is it's what. So uh, you you said you said something early at the beginning of this that I thought was kind of interesting. There was sort of the word went out that something was coming. Um, yes. What do you suppose the advantage is, really, if you don't know when it's coming and what it's what exactly is it's coming? What exactly is the advantage there? Well, if they tell you that OpenSSL will release advisory on next Thursday morning, you can at least schedule your system ends to be ready to do that and maybe announce a maintenance period to restart your. I mean, I, I agree that's the idea, but who, who, what large, at least at scale, who's actually going to say? 
on blind faith, I'm just going to schedule a patch to be installed with no idea what the patch actually is before the announcement. Like, that doesn't seem like something people would actually do. Do you think? Um, you know, if if it's... I suppose maybe... I, I don't know. I just find it to be interesting. It's I, I like it. I'm glad they're doing it. I just When I think about it in practice, I wonder what we actually accomplish. Well, and if what if you're really the big places like Amazon, then you're paying the OpenSSL Foundation and you get yeah, details. Yeah, in yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. Um, I guess what I... Because the point I was just getting at is really what always ends up being the problem here is even though all of these announcements come out, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I specifically feel this way about OpenSSL, we know from past experience people don't patch, people don't update. And it feels like OpenSSL is one of those things that gets neglected. So hopefully with that communication and, and, and some of the recent attention it's gotten, people actually will install their patches. Alan, I don't think we've mentioned uh, at the top of the show for a while, but you can watch the TechSnap program live. You can go over to jblive.tv where we have a live chat room. We stream live at 1 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv, which happens to be what time, sir? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2100 UTC. Yeah, we'd love to have you guys join us. You can check it out, too, in your own time zone at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And then you can interact with us during the show and during the breaks because uh, the chat room was going on and kermutzing about uh, the fact that people won't update their OpenSSL. Alan, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, no. Okay, well, we'll have links if you guys want to learn more in the show notes. I'll tell you about something else I'd like you to learn more about. That's our first sponsor, DigitalOcean.com. Go over there and use our promo code SNAPOcean and get a $10 credit for DigitalOcean. This is a great place to spin up a server that's super fast because they use all SSDs. They give you a really fast CPU, 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a terabyte of transfer starting at $5 a month. And when you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. You can go spin up a rig in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Toronto, London, Germany. Uh, they also have really the best interface out there. And I think this is sort of the secret sauce that helped DigitalOcean break through. And it's what got my attention, because now I can go spin up a system right away when I need it. And the pricing structure is such that I do that. Uh, I'm going to be building a project for this week's episode of the Linux Action Show on Sunday. And uh, it's without question, the place I'll go to do that is on DigitalOcean. I can get started in less than a minute. If you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. They have a bunch of one-click applications. And because what I am going to be trying is pretty much written to run on Ubuntu, I'm not even going to worry about it. I'll just do an Ubuntu 14.04 LTS one-click deployment with Nginx already set up. They use Doku on the back end to deliver the software. Everything is just regular old just vanilla open source. It's not like some custom patched version that has to be configured by the DigitalOcean control panel. And if you modify the config, everything's ruined. It's, it's just the standard stuff they're deploying using open source software. They have a great infrastructure. I really want you to check it out. They have some super great tutorials. We've talked about Let's Encrypt on the show. They have, they have a really great doc they published on my birthday about how to secure Nginx with Let's Encrypt on CentOS. Because you can run CentOS, you can run Debian, Ubuntu, FreeBSD, CoreOS, Fedora, others over at DigitalOcean.com. Just check them out and use the promo code SNAPOcean. It's a really great service. It's my on-demand Linux infrastructure, DigitalOcean.com. Promo code SNAPOcean, and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I've been spinning up rigs all the times. All the times, Alan, all the times. Okay, so now we move over to somebody that uh, we love to talk about from time to time, Mr. Brian, uh, Brian Krebs, who's been tweeting about soda machines today, <laughs> <laughs> if you follow him on Twitter. But a very cool, probably the coolest soda fridge machine well, we've ever seen. But that yes. was. But that's, that's not actually totally what we're, not what this is. No, about. that's not what we're talking about. Al, what are we talking about from Mr. Krebs? 
Right. Uh, so, you know, in the past, we've talked quite a bit about the security company Norse. Uh, you know, they're oh, yeah. famous for that fancy map they have and so on. Yeah, that cool live map. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we also mentioned a little bit uh, in the beginning of the year there that they laid off about 30% of their staff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's been a bit of an exodus going on for a while. I know uh, like three of the people I know that work there have had left before this. Uh, but uh, in addition to, uh, you know, all the headlines that it made and the uh, unexpected laying off 30% of their staff, uh, last week, uh, Norse's CEO, Sam Glines, uh, was asked to step down by the board of directors. Oh, yikes. Sources say the company's investors have told employees that they can show up for work on Monday. This is this week's Monday. Uh, but there's no guarantee that they will get paid if they do so. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Glines had originally agreed to an interview earlier uh, in January uh, with Krebs, but later canceled uh, that engagement without an explanation. <laughs> so something's been cooking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two sources at Norse said the company's assets will be merged with the networking firm SolarFlare, uh, which oh. has many of the same investors and uh, investment from the same uh, like VC companies as Norse. Uh, neither Norse nor SolarFlare would comment on the story. Mm. And then Krebs has an update from um, Monday uh, that's saying that SolarFlare CEO, uh, Russell Stern, uh, reply, talked to Krebs and said that there's currently no transaction between Norse and Solar Flare. So that hasn't happened yet, and maybe it won't. It's hard to say. Uh, but Krebs goes on to point out that uh, a careful review of previous ventures launched by the company's founders uh, reveal a pattern of failed businesses, reverse mergers, shell companies, and uh, product promises that missed the mark by miles. Uh, so it turns out the People that started Norse and run it have uh, basically a long history stemming back to 1998 of uh, starting up companies to with you know these crazy product claims and then never actually materializing. Uh, and also some of them, uh, from what I've heard, uh, claim credit for other people's work and, and so on. Uh, they say, in the tech-heavy, geek-speak world of cybersecurity, infographics and other eye candy are king because they promise to make complicated and boring subjects accessible and sexy. And, you know, Norse's much-vaunted interactive attack map is indeed some serious eye candy. It purports to track the source and destination of countless internet attacks in near real time and shows what appears to be a multicolored fireballs uh, continuously arcing across the globe. They say, uh, several departing and senior Norse employees said the company's attack data was certainly voluminous enough to build a business upon, but not especially sophisticated or uncommon. But most of these uh, interviewed said Norse's top leadership didn't appear to be interested in or capable of uh, building a strong product based on this data. <laughs> More worryingly, those same people said that there are serious questions about the validity of the data that informs the company's core product. <laughs> yeah, like the questions we raised the first time we talked about it on the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it turns out it's even worse than that. Oh, really? Uh, you know, back then we kind of assumed it was, you know, oh, right, every one of these attacks is, could be a port scan or whatever, and that's a thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's more that we were kind of assuming good faith and that these people were actually trying to build this product. Whereas what the history of these particular people seems to suggest is that they start up these companies to get lots of investor money and then make it disappear. 
and then never actually build the product. Right? So does that uh, mean does that mean this attack map's going to go away eventually? Because this is a real treat. Well, most of their website went away at one point, so I don't know. <laughs> hmm. It's hard to say. Um, but we'll get more into the questions about the data as we keep going through this article. Okay. But they say, uh, Norse's uh, fundamental technology arose from the ashes of several companies that appear to have been launched and then acquired by shell companies owned by those same top executives. Uh, principally, huh. the company's founder and chief technology officer, Tommy Steinen, or Steinson. Uh, so this acquisition process, known as a reverse merger or reverse takeover, involves the acquisition of a public company, uh, the you know the something like Norse, mm-hmm. uh, by a private company, so that the private company can bypass the lengthy and complex process of actually going public in the first place. Right. So if you're a private company, you can just buy the public company and then use it, and and, uh, and then you don't have to do the whole IPO thing or whatever. Right. And since you're a private company, there's all kinds of stuff that doesn't apply to you. Uh, and more importantly, as part of it, you don't have to end up disclosing who is running this private company. Uh, they say, reverse mergers are completely legal, but they can be abused to hide the investors in a company and to conceal certain liabilities of the acquired company. So you can hide the fact that the company you're buying has a whole bunch of debt or something, or pending lawsuits. So in uh, 2011, the uh, US SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission that uh-huh. runs regulate stock markets, mm-hmm. uh, issued a bulletin cautioning investors about plunking down investments in reverse mergers, warning that can be prone to fraud and other abuse, which would seem to be the case here as we learn more about the story. <laughs> uh, the founders of Norse Corp got their start in 1998 when they uh, started a company called Psycho, C-Y-C-O. Oh, I love it, yeah. Uh, According to the press release, Psycho was a new Mexico-based firm uh, established to develop a network of cyber companies. <laughs> now remember, 1998, so this is the different meaning of cyber. <laughs> right? Oh, you think? I no, mean, not, that... not, not the porn meaning, but no. you know, the original meaning of cyber, right? Because this is oh. 1998 we're yeah. talking about. Okay. Uh, and then they went on to say, this site is a lighthearted destination that will be like the People Magazine of the internet. Oh. Because, you know, People Magazine makes like a billion dollars a year or something for Time Warner. I'm like, no, magazines don't make any money anymore. But maybe in 1998, it seemed like a good idea. Oh, yeah. By uh, 2003, Psycho.net acquired Orion Security Services, a company founded by uh, Steinson, uh, who's Norse's current CTO, and Hmm. founded by one of Norse's executives, who's actually from Norway. Uh, Orion was billed as a firm that provides secure computer network management solutions as well as video surveillance systems via satellite. Ooh. Satellites are expensive. Yes. Uh, especially in 1990 or 2003. Uh, despite claims that Psycho was poised to rocket into the deepest reaches or riches of uh, cyberspace, it somehow fell short of its destination and ended up selling cigarettes online instead. Wow. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> their, their, uh, their uh, current CTO, there is now, or the CTO, he's the guy that ran that, is now the Norse CTO. So when yeah. they acquired them, they basically kept him, and now he's part of the company as the CTO. So, he, yeah, they, they acquired him in 2003 as part of their little yeah. group of schemes. And we're not even, we're still like five steps before. So we started back in 1998 with Psycho. Okay. okay. And we were still about five steps before they start Norse. Okay. There's, there's a whole shell game of companies still to come. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah. So, Psycho.net, instead of being People Magazine of the internet, became uh, a way to buy cigarettes online. Huh. 
Perhaps inevitably, the company soon found itself the target of lawsuits from several states, including Washington State, uh, Attorney hey, General, accusing the company of selling tobacco products to minors, mm-hmm. failing to report cigarette sales and taxes, and falsely advertising cigarettes as tax-free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 2005, uh, Psycho.net changed its name to Nexicon, uh, <laughs> but only after acquiring via a stock swap uh, another creation of uh, Steinson, the guy that's now the CTO, um, called Pluto Communications, which was a company that he started in 2002 and whose stated mission was to provide operational billing solutions for telecom networks. So middleware uh, software just to sell to the telcos. Something like that. Uh, and so they issued a press release uh, charting a course for the company that would have uh, almost no bearing to what it actually ended up doing. So in June 2008, Sam Glines, who's the CEO of Norse today that just got fired, uh, joined Nexicon and was later promoted to the chief operating officer, so COO. By that time, Nexicon had morphed itself into an online copyright cop, oh, marketing geez. a technology they claimed would uh, help detect and stop illegal file sharing. <laughs> but never actually materialized. Uh, the company's Get Amnesty technology sent users a pop-up notice explaining that they it was expensive to sue users and even more expensive for the user to get sued. Recipients of these notices were advised to just click the button and pay a small fee instead. <laughs> uh, in 2008... <laughs> Thank Nexicon God that didn't a, take off. Yeah, well, no, it did. Uh, so in, oh, it did? In November of 2008, Nexicom was acquired by Privium, another shell company operated by the same people. Uh, by you know Steinson and Nexicon's principles. Nexicon would then go on to sign YouTube.com and several other enta- entertainment studios as customers for their uh, copyright protection technology. Wow. But soon enough, reports began rolling in of rampant false positives. Internet users receiving threatening legal notices from Nexicon when they weren't illegally sharing files and weren't actually doing anything. Uh, Nexicon slash Privium's business uh, began to dry up and its stock price plummeted. Then in 2011, the SEC revoked the company's ability to trade its penny stock, uh, traded its NXCO, uh, noting that the company had failed to file any of the periodic reports required by the SEC since its inception. Then in June of 2012, the SEC also revoked Privium's ability to trade its stock, citing the same compliance failures. Hmm. Uh, By the time the SEC had revoked Nexicon's trading ability, the company's founders had already reinvented themselves yet again. And in August of 2011, they raised $50,000 in seed money from Capital Innovators to jumpstart Norse. A year later, Norse would get $3.5 million in debt refinancing. And by December of 2013, it got a $10 million infusion from Oak Investment Partners. And then in September of 2005, got another $11.4 million uh, from KPMG. Uh, and so, you know, it's... They must have had some sales web guys. Of companies. Like, yeah. And and then like apparently like pivoting at every like little market opportunity and technology they think they see. And so changing the name so that the people don't notice it's the same people. Norse just becomes the next t- attempt to capitalize now on the whole cyber threat thing. Yeah. So basically they seem to come up with a, a showy enough version of the product they can market it. And not necessarily to sell it to any customers, but just to get investors. And once they get the money, then they basically start a new company over here as the old one eventually dries up because it turns out they've never actually built a product. Uh, 
then their little shell company they just started will then buy the old company <laughs> and just keep doing this to get rid of the debt and to yeah pretty crazy so it seems like uh it seems like this could be an example of something that's happening broader in the industry too potentially yeah you definitely especially with startups and so on you got to look and see if they actually have yep. a a minimum viable product you know i've i've had i've seen this happen before um there was a company that was trying to hire uh actually me and stefan and uh we just were like well we can consult for you for money and they're like no no we want to hire you it's like well we don't really want to do that we have scale engine uh this was scale engine one was big back then but still but basically they were doing um what i guess is now vine uh they were trying to do something like that so like short 30 minute video or 30 second video clips as tweets mm-hmm. but not related to Twitter. It was going to be their own website. right? So they are basically trying to start a video Twitter back before anybody else had done that. But basically, they had gotten a little bit of money, and they were going to use that to hire an all-star team of people, which mm. they were, once they had that, they would then be able to get more investment money uh-huh. in order to make a visually pleasing presentation of the start of a product. Uh-huh. So that they could then have it be acquired and just fire everybody, right? So they basically they, they never actually planned to build anything, just to hire a bunch of people to get a team together to get more money to get interest to basically sell it to Twitter or somebody for a whole bunch of money, without ever actually building anything. Oh, sorry, Alan. There's an attack on Washington right now, according to the Norse yes. map. I might be uh, might be losing you here. In a minute. I'm I'm sure the person that made this map has played the game Defcon. Yeah. Have you played the game Defcon? I've seen it. I've never played yes. it, but I've seen it. It's quite fun to play. I but wanted, it's exactly this, basically. It makes me it's, totally it's, doubt this whole sensor network. It makes me think it's probably totally well, bogus. We're about to get into that part of it now. All right. <laughs> so they say uh, several former employees say that uh, Steinson's penchant for creating shell companies actually served him well when building Norse's global sensor network. Ah. Some of the sensors are in countries where U.S. assets are heavily monitored, such as China. And so by going through the shell company, China didn't know it was American or reporting data back to America. Huh. Uh, those same insiders say Norse's network of shell companies also helped the company gain visibility into attack traffic in countries where it's forbidden for U.S. firms to do business, such as Iran and Syria. Boy, that so really they got their demonstrates that, there. That clearly demonstrates they were they knew exactly how they were manipulating that comp- those company arrangements and taking advantage of it to benefit their current uh, endeavor. Like that, if that doesn't like brilliantly illustrate how well they well, clearly knew what they were doing. This part is actually showing they actually had sensors. Which, yeah, it does. You know, it does show that. that. You, yeah, you wouldn't have thought so. But uh, sensors um, getting data of what? Exactly. Uh, so by 2014, former employees say Norse's system was collecting a whopping 140 terabytes a day of internet attack traffic. Wow, okay. Or sorry, they say terabytes of internet Whoa. attack and traffic data. So maybe they were just capturing all the traffic. Oh, there was a big attack on the... Uh, wa- now there's a cloud around Washington. A cloud. Yep. Yep. Uh, Norse's senior data scientist says she wasn't actually given access to all the data until the fall of 2015, seven months after being hired as Norse's chief data scientist. So I don't know what she did for the first twelve months or first uh, seven months. Uh, at that time, when she got a chance to dig into it, she was disappointed. The information appeared to be little more than what one might glean from web server logs, uh. albeit millions of them from around the world. <laughs> so. 
Their appliance just basically pretends to be everything, a, a, a industrial control system, a web server, and so on, and logs everything that comes in. And so it picks up on all these scans and malware and so on, but it picks up on so much stuff, it's very hard to filter it down to something easy. This could just be bot attacks. Yeah, well... They are. The idea with the sensor network was to find the bot attacks that were different than the ones everybody else is seeing. Mm. Right? It's It's to... Find the new zero day before we actually figure out what happened, right? So normally what would happen is somebody actually come up with the zero day for Windows. Uh, they would start using it. And only once somebody's machine got broken into or crashed or whatever and they investigated and figured out how, would we know what the zero day was. Uh, whereas the idea with Norse was you, you would capture this data ahead of time, figure out what it was. Hey, this is the new attack. Write some rules and block it at the edge of your network before it ever got in. It does tell us some interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for you audio listeners, if you go to map.norsecorp.com, that's N-O-R-S-E corp.com, uh, you know, it tells you some interesting things, things like a lot of data of this attack data or is coming from China, and a lot of it is targeted at port 443, uh, and a lot of its destination is the United States. That's actually... Wow, sure, I, just saw, I, just that's, saw, that's... I just saw Linwood, Washington go by. That's, uh, <laughs> wow, that's pretty close to where well, I'm at. You have to remember, it's just GeoIP data, so it's not very specific. Like, your, your, yours probably wasn't going to say Marysville or something. It's going to say wherever Comcast's headquarters in the area is. Well, no, they have li- on this live attack data stream down here. The target was in Linwood, Washington, it says. Right, but it's just because that's where the IP address is registered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that that's know, actually where it was. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. I just was, it's funny to see close things go by. Like, there's a here's a a lot of a lot of the target stuff is like countries and and state. There's another Linwood right but, there. There's there's something up there in some weird. You see the giant globe that isn't Washington. Mm-hmm. Like, where is that? That's not quite. It's on the Canadian border, but on the U.S. side, it's not New York or Chicago. It's I don't know, but it's getting blitzed out right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good map, I'm going to admit. <laughs> this, is a, this is a good toy. <laughs> uh, well, they, sp- they spent a lot of JavaScript and... Uh, and, and, and you know, if they really have appliances all over the world, that's at least something. Right. So they say, uh, the data isn't great. It's pretty much what you would see if you looked at a web server log that had uh, automated crawlers and scanning tools hitting it constantly. But if you know how to look at it and bring in a bunch of third-party data and tools, th- the data is not without its actual merits. Uh, if it was... if nothing more than just the amount of data they would have at once. Mm. Uh, so the data scientists and other current and former Norse employees say very few people at the company were permitted to see how Norse collected its sensor data and that Norse's founder, Steinson, jealously guarded access to the back-end systems uh, that gathered the information. Because it seemed like, you know, they told everybody, it's, oh, we have this super secret sauce to get all this attack data, you know, and we'll find the new zero days before they come out, except for all it was doing was... You know, it's like a Python app that pretends to be a web server and a and a, a SCADA system and a bunch of other things, and then logs everything that gets done to it. Um, you know, there's no secret sauce; it's all smoke and mirrors. Uh, then, so, uh, with the latest round of layoffs, if uh, Tommy Stinson got hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't think there would be a single person at the company left who understood how the whole thing works. because uh, you know that's the best way to keep anybody from figuring out that it's a fraud, right? Hmm. Uh, then uh, Stuart McClure, who's uh, president and founder of the cybersecurity firm Silence, uh, said he found out just how reluctant uh, Steinson was to share Norse data when he visited Steinson and the company's office in Northern California in late 2014. Uh, 
McClure said he was there to discuss collaborating with Norse for two upcoming reports. One was examining Iran's uh, cyber warfare capabilities. The other one, if you remember, was talking about the uh, cyber attack on Sony. Mm. Remember mm-hmm. with Sony at the end of 2014 there? Mm-hmm. Is that really that long ago now? Yeah. Yep. So, you know, the FBI had already attributed the attack to North Korean hackers, mm-hmm. but McClure was intrigued after Norse uh, confidentially shared data and said that they had reached a vastly different conclusion. They, when, if you remember, Norse was posting on their blog, and I think they, maybe they even went on CNN saying that uh, their data suggested the attack on Sony was the work of a disgruntled former employee. Uh, was that Norse that started that? Yes. And so Silence was like, oh, well, here, let's work together, and I'll, I'll, let me look at your data, and, and we can actually prove the government's wrong. So does that mean it leads credence to the fact that it might have been actually North Korea? It just means that Norse's data was suspect. I don't know that it actually means it was North Korea. Yeah, that's interesting. Because nobody's ever showed us any data that proves it was North Korea either. Right. <laughs> and the fact that there was a lot of like hard-coded uh, paths, UNC you know, file paths in the code, would yeah. seem to indicate people had a pretty good knowledge of the way the internal file system worked. Well, of course, you can get that by just having There's access ways, to the yes. system with right. a worm or something. Right. But yeah. Like our, maybe uh, our next story, for example. But yeah. 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 <laughs> so the McClure said he recalls listening to Steinson ramble on for hours about Norse's suspicions and simultaneously dodging direct questions about how he had reached those conclusions that the Sony attack was an inside job. It just came, uh, it kept going back to them and saying, Tommy, show me the data. Uh, we wanted to work with them, but the, when they wouldn't or couldn't produce any data or facts to substantiate their work, uh, we couldn't proceed. And so they, uh, Silence ended up doing the report by themselves based on their own data. Uh, conversely, Norse's take on Iran's cyber capabilities uh, was trounced by critics as a deeply biased headline grabbing report. It's like, hmm, if you want to sell your appliance, that seems like exactly what you want to do. Uh, it came near the height of the international negotiations over lifting nuclear sanctions against Iran, and Norse was teamed up with the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank that was uh, traditionally taking a hard line against threats or potential threats to the U.S. In its reports, Norse said uh, that it saw half a million attacks on industrial control systems by Iran in the previous 24 months, a 115% increase in attacks. Uh, but in a scathing analysis of Norse's findings, uh, critical infrastructure uh, security expert Robert M. Lee said Norse's claim uh, of industrial control systems being attacked and implying it was uh, definitely by Iranian government was disingenu- uh, disingenuous at best. Lee said he obtained an advanced copy of an earlier version of the report that was shared with unclassified government and private industry channels and said that the data in the report did not uh, support that conclusion. So Norse is... If, you're, if, I'm, if I'm tracking you, is literally screwing with geopolitics to make headlines. Because if you release a report right as these negotiations are coming to their conclusion that Iran has doubled up or tripled up or quadrupled up their cyber attacks, whatever that is, and it's not actually a true report, that's tampering with some pretty delicate stuff. If the government believes it, they really shouldn't, but they did. Right. Uh, so it gives fodder, se- though, to, uh, yep. to conservative politicians or, and pundits who were, who were pushing against the deal. Yeah. So uh, apparently what the problem is, is that the Norse appliance pretends to be a SCADA system. And then they were counting every time somebody scanned it or touched it. And so if you have this appliance and it sits out as a honeypot and it pretends to be every industrial control system, well, if one bad guy in Iran with a scanner and he just scans the whole internet once a day is going to hit you every day, 
And so you're going to count that as 365 attacks instead of... Well, and it also sounds like you're attributing it to the whole of Iran when it could just be anybody. Any IP address that maybe geolocates to Iran, you're automatically assuming it's the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Krebs on Security interviewed almost a dozen current and former employees at Norse, as well as several outside investors who said they were uh, considering buying the firm. Uh, none, uh, except for Lama, would speak on the record. Uh, most said Norse's data, the core of its offering, was solid if prematurely marketed as a way to help banks and others detect and def- uh, deflect cyber attacks. Hmm. So the worst part is that Norse, with different management and you know using the team of really good people they actually had, had actually built the system that they promised and, you know, not marketed until they had finished it, which probably would take another year from now or more, uh, could have actually been a good thing. you know. But now, even if somebody built the product, nobody would believe them because nurses tainted the water with their fakery. Right. <laughs> yeah, so it says, uh, the problem seems to be that top executives at the company were more interested in getting investments based on their attack map and the marketing of it than actually building the product. So, you know, they were just, Make it look good. Get a bunch of money by either uh, getting the more and more investments or selling it to somebody, and then take your money and run. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the data scientist here says, uh, or uh, sorry, a different former employee says, I think uh, they just went to market with this a couple of years too soon. Uh, this employee left uh, prior to the January layoffs as part uh, because of concerns they had about the validity of the data that the company was using to justify some of its public threat reports. It wasn't all there, and I was worried that there uh, were findings that they, uh, they were finding what they wanted in the data instead of what was actually there. If you think about the network uh, they built, that's a lot of power. Uh, after being fired, some former employees started uh, doing a bit more digging into the people behind the company. I say, I realized that, oh crap, I think this is a scam. <laughs> they're trying to draw this out and tap into whatever buzzword du jour there is. Yep. And there are products that are going to meet that and suck in new investors. Mm. Uh, hmm. These shell companies formed by the company's founders built investors. Had anyone gone and investigated any of these partnerships uh, that were espousing as being the next big thing, they would have realized it was all smoke and mirrors. But yeah, uh, if you want to know more about it, go read the whole Krebs thing. But uh, when this blew up, uh, actually during the Dev Summit uh, at uh, FOSDEM, one of the people uh, at the Dev Summit was, you know, he had uh, worked with the Norwegian guy that eventually ended up in Norse previously in like the 2000s. Really? So he had got, some... He's, he'd gotten screwed over and uh, also had the guy claim work that this developer had done was his. Uh and so he had been warning people not to go work for Norse, but not everybody listened because Norse was, it looked really cool and they were offering lots of money. But yeah. And they have a really Turns cool attack out. map. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're the JavaScript developer that wrote that attack map, you have a future. <laughs> yeah, 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 you are. Uh, but really, the worst part is that while Norse turned out to all be fake, they did hire a lot of really good people, which has two problems. Eh? Those people got sucked out of other jobs and yeah. now there's going to be this glut of people trying to find jobs uh, and and the fact that a real product like this uh, stands a lo- has a lot more friction against it now than it would good if point. Norse had just That's never. a really good point. Yeah. It's just really sad because Norse could have, the, the product was a good idea. 
And it sounds like uh, in it some was just ways never they, actually executed. They even screwed with geopolitics a little bit. So you know, not a great company. No, it was kind well, of, we didn't <laughs> end up going to war with Iran. No, we no, lifted the sanctions. So hope, luckily, somebody ignored the report. But. Um, well, any other thoughts on that? So fascinating freaking story, especially yeah. about one that was, uh, it's worked its way into some of the stories we've covered in the past. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will miss Norse's blog. They had a lot of good stuff on there because they hired someone that could write to write about the things that happened. Although yeah. now some of their findings I'm not so sure about. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's a, that's a problem. But maybe those, you know, those people go on. They'll continue on. They all have, they all have futures. Let me tell you about something else that has a future. That's iX Systems, especially powered by those Intel processors, my friend. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap, the landing page to go to. Check out these iX rigs that are built and powered by open source, really for any kind of solution or workload that uh, you might want to consider. I tell you what, Alan, if I if I was in the uh, state, if I was, if I was, boy, I don't know, even like three years ago where I was still getting calls and recommendations, this would be what I would recommend to all of my clients. Not only because I know they're going to get a great buying experience, but also for the long-term white glove support and service. And sir, I would like to remind everybody that many scale engine systems run on iX hardware. It's you haven't gotten any new rigs recently, have you, Alan, that make um, me jelly? It should ship tomorrow or early oh. next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, it's, what? it's not to make you jealous, though. It's just, you know... When, uh, an E3, uh, like uh-huh. 1275 V5. Oh. So it's, it's you know, just a quad-core processor. Uh-huh. Not a big deal. Quad-core uh, Xeon processor, Alan? Yes. Uh, oh. Right. But so basically, it's pretty much equivalent to an i7. Okay. Uh, but it has ECC RAM. Oh. The big thing is it's, it's the Xeon 1275 instead of the 1270. What makes a difference there is means it has the built-in GPU. Like you would get in, you know, like an i3. Oh, year. so it's got like a, what, like what's like an iris or something like that? Yeah, it's like the iris, like the P530 huh. or something like that. Cool. Some GPU. Which means and encoding. We using that for video transcoding. Very nice. Well, we're hoping to. Uh, we've tested it and had it work with Ivy Bridge and Haswell. I think Haswell. And this is. Yes. So here's the well, and here's the best part, though. I mean, well, really, this is a V5, so it's Skylake. Yeah, even if it doesn't. Wow, these are Skylakes already. So even if it doesn't yes. work, though, you're still gonna have a kick butt CPU to you yes. can throw the workload on. So yes. it's not really, it's not a loss totally. So right. I suppose uh, not a lot of storage in these ones. Uh, no, that one's like two one terabyte hard drives mirrored. Yeah, and, and then actually, so when they ship oh, it, it does to have you, two small SSDs mirrored as well for, uh, because one of the other features we're rolling out of Scale Engine is DVR. Being able to rewind the live stream by about twenty minutes, like the JB live stream. So if people make it a little late to the tech snap start, they could. Yeah. Or if they're like, "What did Alan just say? Rewind a minute." Um, that requires the origin to keep that buffer the video ready, and so yes, we'll buffer that onto SSDs for. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so when you get this, these rigs from IX, uh, are they already loaded with FreeBSD? Like, what's the state that they're in? Since you're, you have well, them shipped directly to the data centers, right? Right, well, you have all these options for that. Yeah, I can say, hey, don't do anything to it. Or I can say, hey, install FreeBSD and tweak it this way uh, to the point where, where you get this worksheet when you set it up and it's like, which BIOS settings? You know, It's like, oh, right, AES and I is off by default in almost every BIOS, but on your server, you definitely want that on. It'll speed up your SSH and stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, most times you want hyperthreading on, but certain workloads, hyperthreading actually makes it slightly slower. Mm-hmm. So you can have them turn hyperthreading off. 
and you know, set this password for the management system, give it this IP address, put the management system in this VLAN, and get it all set up exactly right. Uh, and then, yeah, they could, I have them ship it directly to a data center where the data center guy just puts it in the rack, plugs yeah. in the right the Ethernet cables into the right ports, mm-hmm. and that's it. It's online and it goes. That's pretty neat. And of course, they do burn in testing before they ship it. So you yep. have a great, great, great shot of it working just fine once it hits the rack. Exactly. And that's really nice. Uh, so I encourage you to go check it out. Go to IX Systems, let them know that the TechSnap show sent you. And by the way, I mentioned scale at the top of the show, and uh, they have a scale recap posted yes. up on uh, their blog. Yes, there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you were showing the video at the, on the live stream earlier. Hey, look at those two guys. Yeah, that's I know goofuses. those. Where did you get those goofies? I don't know. And look, they got those horns on their heads. Who are those? Yep, those, those guys. That's uh, <laughs> Noah with his. Uh, Groff was even there. Do you see that? I do. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And there's Drew with Groff. That's cool. Uh, very nice. Yeah, you know Noah. By the way, he he grabbed himself a PCBSD CD, but then realized that none of his machines have a CD-ROM anymore. <laughs> so he's like, I can't install this. What do I do with this? <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty. Cool. Uh, it turns out CDs are still cheaper to produce than uh, USB. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, of course they of are. Course, you can't always download PCBSD from the website. Yeah, now. yeah, he knows. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Like, do something. I have to find. And, and if find you something uh, that Noah likes to download and hijack his internet connection, make everything he downloads just be the PCBSD. That would be awesome. Uh, and also, if you end up talking to him or something like that, let him know the TechSnap show sent you. We yes. appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Alan, hot potato, hot potato. What the hell is hot potato? It's like three delicious things that are mashed up and then rebaked into a new Windows exploit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds yeah. delicious. <laughs> so uh, Fox Glove Security has uh, the news on this new Windows exploit called Hot Potato, which is a way to do Windows privilege escalation. Uh, and it's pretty crazy. So Hot Potato, a.k.a. the potato, uh, takes advantage of known issues in Windows to gain local privilege escalation uh, in default configurations. Namely, uses NTLM Relay, or specifically HTTP to SMB Relay, and then NBNS snooping, or spoofing. Uh, so if you remember, we talked about this a while ago, where you can have a website do a redirect that redirects somebody to a Samba share. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, how that should... It's mostly a problem of the fact that Internet Explorer is like integrated into Windows. Everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can, when it does that, it doesn't do some of the verification it's supposed to do or something. Anyway, uh, so they say, if this sounds vaguely familiar, uh, familiar, it's because a similar technique was disclosed by the Google Project Zero guys a yeah. while ago. Okay. And we talked about it then. In fact, uh, this is some of the code used in this exploit is shamelessly borrowed from the proof of concept of, from Google. Uh, but what these guys have done is basically combine that with a couple other things to make a super exploit. Uh, using uh, this technique, they can elevate their privilege on a Windows workstation from the lowest level, hmm. so just a regular user with no access, to NT authority slash system, which is the highest level of privilege you can have. Yeah, It's higher than you know super administrator. Uh, this is important because many organizations, unfortunately, rely on Windows account privileges to protect their corporate network. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they say this is a perfect for island hopping techniques that they frequently yeah. talk about. Um, I agree that we frequently talk about, really, because yeah, if, we we've talked about it in the past. Like you start in, you get at one spot that's a low-value target. Somebody clicks on an email with like a, a link in or something like that. And then once you get a, an establishment on their machine, you can connect to another device and jump from there. And if you could do something like this, that's going to make that island hopping thing happen a lot faster. Yep. Uh, the techniques that this exploit uses to gain privilege escalation aren't new, 
But the way they're combined is Microsoft is aware of all of these issues for some time, some of them going back as early as the year 2000. Uh, but they are unfortunately hard to fix without breaking backwards compatibility. And that fact has been leveraged by attackers for the last 15 years. Uh, but this exploit consists of three main parts, uh, all of which are somewhat configurable through command line switches. Oh, how lovely. So part one is uh, the local uh, NetBIOS name lookup yeah. spoofer. Yeah. Uh, if we can know ahead of time which host name a target machine, in this case uh, 127.0.0.1, uh, will be sending an NBNS query for, we can craft a fake response and flood the target with the response very quickly since it's UDP so that as soon as they send the request, when they're expecting the response, they get our fake response instead of the real one. So you, you, they know that the machine is going to do a lookup for local host, and since they know that's coming, they preemptively flood it. Yeah, they just flood the guy that's going to look it up with the, with the bad answer so that as soon as he makes the request and is looking for an answer, it gets a fake answer before a real answer can arrive. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, right, of course. Uh, one complication is that the two-byte field in the NBNS packet, the transaction ID, uh, must match in the request and response because since UDP is stateless, it has to be able to match up the right request with the right response. Uh-huh. But since it's only two bytes, there's only 65,536 possible values, you just spam really hard until, and <laughs> send, send, one, send one packet with each yeah. transaction ID until it works. That's doable. Uh, yeah, because the space isn't big enough. Uh, they say, uh, what if the network you're targeting has a DNS record for the host you want to spoof? Uh, you can use a technique called UDP port exhaustion to force all DNS lookups on the system to fail. Basically, oh. by taking every port number, the DNS client can't find a free port number to make its request. Uh, so all if, we do is. So then, what mm-hmm. happens if it, so if so it can't even it can't even send out a request because you've exhausted. Exactly. Okay. Because there's only sixty five thousand ports on your system. If we make our malicious program bind to every single one, when you go to do a DNS lookup, you have to bind to a port to receive the answer on. And you can't because all of them are taken. Is this universe, so this would seem DNS like a fails. problem that would affect pretty much every OS it's every then. Operating system, yes. Yeah, this is why normally you restrict how many each user can have. So oh, yeah, I've never really thought about doing that. Yeah, makes sense though. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it causes DNS to fail because there's no uh, UDP source port for the request, and then once DNS fails, the NBNS will be used as a fallback in Windows. Mm-hmm. And so you know, normally you don't use NetBIOS to look up a, an internet address, but if DNS isn't working, you give it a try just because. Uh-huh. So then part two is a uh, fake WPAD proxy server. So in Windows, Internet Explorer by default will automatically try to detect network proxy configuration yes, settings. Yeah, we've seen that. Uh, this also surprisingly applies to some Windows services like Windows Update. Uh-huh. But exactly how and under what conditions seems to be dependent on the version of Windows. Okay. With the ability to spoof NBNS responses, we can uh, target our NBNS spoofer on 127.0.0.1. We flood the target machine, which in this case is the machine we're standing on, with the response packets uh, for WPAD or WPAD.domain.tld. And we say that the IP address is 127.0.0.1. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we run an HTTP server locally on 127.0.0.1, configured with response uh, that the Internet Explorer is going to be looking for, the configuration for the proxy. Yeah. Uh, this will cause all HTTP traffic on the target to be proxied through the server we just set up. <laughs> so now we can not only 
Nif stoop on it, but do other things. Now you've got a proxy, so the IE is just happily sending everything, like including your Windows including update Windows request. Update. Yeah. <laughs> and then part three, you use the HTTP to SMB NTLM relay. Ah. So now that every request to the website, whether it's Windows, if it's just you know Explorer or if it's Windows Update, uh, it's going through your proxy. You can now just insert random redirects. So uh, NTLM. Relay is well-known and an often misunderstood attack against Windows NTLM authentication. The NTLM protocol is vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks. If the attacker can trick a user into trying to authenticate using NTLM on their machine, uh, they can relay that authentication attempt to another machine. So if I get your machine to try to authenticate, I can capture that and then use that the response to trick a different machine into trying to authenticate. Uh-huh. And then I can capture their authentication packet and then use it somewhere else. Right? So I trick you into trying to authenticate, capture your response, and then use that somewhere else so I can log in as you. Mm-hmm. Insidious. Uh, so Microsoft patched this by uh, disallowing same protocol NTLM authentication uh, using a challenge that is already in flight. Oh, okay. Uh, what this means is that SMB to SMB NTLM relay uh, from one host back to itself no longer works. However, cross-protocol attacks like HTTP to SMB will still work with no issues. So because Microsoft couldn't really fix the base issue, they put in a mitigation, but the mitigation only applied to Samba to Samba, not mm. HTTP to Samba. Right. Of course. Uh, of course. Yeah, with all HTTP traffic now presumably flowing through an HTTP server that we control, uh, we can do things like redirect them uh, somewhere that will request NTLM authentication. So in the hot potato exploit, all HTTP requests are redirected to a th- with a 302 redirect to localhost slash get hashes, accesses, and some random stuff, where X is the unique identifier. And then uh, that responds with a 401 request for NTLM authentication. Then any uh, credentials that are relayed to the local SMB listener to create a new system service that runs whatever commands we want. Right. Then when the HTTP request in question originates from a highly privileged account, for example, when it's a request by Windows Update, the command will run as the NT authority slash system privilege, which is higher administrator. Yep. And then Windows 7 can be fairly reliably exploited by using the Windows Defender update mechanism as well. Mm. Uh, when uh, Windows Server doesn't come with Defender, you need an alternative method. Instead, you can use Windows Update, which is harder but still works. Uh, in the newest version of Windows, it appears that Windows Update may no longer respect the proxy settings in your Internet Options and Internet Explorer uh, or bother checking for WPAD. Instead, proxy setting for Windows updates are controlled using the netsh winhttp proxy command. Okay. Instead of these, uh, for these versions, we rely on a newer feature of Windows, the automatic updater of untrusted certificates. So something else is going out over HTTP, basically. Yes, and it's going to follow the, and run with the privileges. And, and so you, while you know what Windows the URL update, is that it's fetching. So. so they fixed Windows Update to be less exploitable in this case, but they added some new service. <laughs> That has the same problem. Yeah, as long as and you know where it's going, so you can uh, you can spoof it. That's great. They say it's unclear whether this attack could work when SMB signing is enabled. Mm. The exploit is uh, released currently does not, but that might be just because the exploit isn't smart enough yet, uh, and there's no SMB signing in the sys library they used in the exploit. Ah, so 
Uh, enabling SMB signing works around this temporarily, uh, but that's just until somebody builds a better exploit. So this is something, some of the parts of this track back to 2000. All the way back. and uh, uh, Bad design decisions in Windows NT. And so it's, it's an interesting way. It's a, it's a, it is complex once you break it all down, but it's also in somewhat ways obvious once you look at it, too. Right. Like, it's like taking some things we already knew about yeah. and then applying port exhaustion to fail the DNS and force it to do something that, you know, NBNS is something that Windows 95 did for when you didn't have a DNS server on your LAN, right? Yep. If you just had a couple of computers networked together. Yeah. It's not something, you know. You might not have even been using. In I mean, a real active directory network, you have to have right. a DNS server, yes. so you're never going to use NBNS. Right. So if we didn't have NBNS, that wouldn't be part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if... if Which is probably, you could disable default. that. You know, you could disable it. I think so. But so that would be a mitigation. Dig, you'd have to dig into every machine and rip out the NetBIOS stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's not awesome. It's not awesome, Al. Yep. yep. Hot potato. <laughs> yes. uh, all right, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, it's just the, the big thing is that we're going to continue to see these because all people have to do is figure out how Microsoft works around the problem <laughs> and work around the workaround in the exploit <laughs> because it's not really possible to solve the problem of a design decision that was made 20 years ago. No, and what's brilliant about this one is uh, it it allows you to go after the low-hanging fruit, you know, that 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 low-end user-only workstation that has probably been written off as even a security risk because ah, there's no there's nothing they can do on that machine. They don't have access to anything. And so it's it's beautiful because it, it helps take advantage of, of that sort of soft spot as well. All right, I'll tell you about something else that's hot. It's not just hot potato, hot ting. That's right. Go to techsnap.ting.com and check out my mobile service provider. No contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. Your minutes, your megabytes, and your messages. They add all that up, and that's what you pay. Uh, You can check it out right now, techsnap.ting.com, and you'll get a $25 credit. If you already have a device, and you might have a compatible device, uh, you're set. If you don't have a device, then that $25 credit could be applied to your first phone. Uh, For example... You, there are all kinds of devices Sting has, from from the uh, you know just like base feature phone, all the way up to like the really high end Cadillac uh, iPhones and and Android phones. But in reality, most of us just need a great phone, and it'd be really great if it could get as close to the Google experience as possible, have frequent updates, and last a while, and be built well. Friends, I introduce you to the Moto G third gen. When you go to TechSnap.Ting.com, they'll take it from $193 down to $168. It ships tomorrow if you buy it. It includes the SIM, no contract, and you only pay for what you use. And you support the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. Go check that out, won't you? TechSnap.ting.com. And let them know that we sent you if you call them. That also helps. Uh, and also, you can visit their blog. Check out their blog. They've got the Super Bowl uh, for cord cutters. Ways to watch the Super Bowl even after you've cut the cord. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of handy. Uh, and also could also try their savings calculator. Plug in what your current rates are and see how they stack up to Ting. See how much you might save. You'd be pretty surprised. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Mr. Jude, I heard a rumor that there's a new BSD Now program out there. Is that the truth? Is there a new BSD Now episode? Uh, yep. 
every week. What are you talking about? I know. I'm As just, if there was a question. I'm giving you a setup. I'm giving you a setup. Ah. Mm-hmm. So what Sorry, does it tell I me about? I completely missed it. Uh, so we talked uh, with uh, Willem Turup uh, from the NLNet Labs on about uh, GetDNS, which is a new DNS resolver library uh, that's designed to be easier for people that are writing applications. Currently, all the DNS resolving stuff that's built into operating systems and so on is really focused on DNS, not on my application would like to, you know, use some DNS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, uh, they have it versions of it in like every programming language. You can get it like C or Python or Ruby or Perl or PHP or whatever you want. Um, and the big thing is that in the old way, we looked up domain names and so on in programs. You did, you know, get host by name. So you give it the website name and it gives you back sure. one IP address. Yeah. Well, sometimes the website actually returns more than one IP address. But because you only you got your answer through the operating system, uh, you didn't get all that information. And so one of the things it has is roadblock avoidance mode. So when it tries to do DNSSEC, if something along the chain is breaking it, it can fall back to actually doing the request itself and figuring it out for you. And uh, it can also do stuff like, you know, if DNSSEC is being a problem, the application gets to decide what to do instead of just getting back the DNS didn't resolve. And so you get uh-huh. more uh, better errors and the option in a browser to say, oh, well, let's pop up something like the, you know, the SSL certificate error warning thing and let the user decide what to do That's instead nice. of... Cool. And lots of cool stuff. And we talk about uh, other stuff like LDNS, uh, Unbound, uh, Net uh, DNS from Perl, other stuff he's worked on. And lots I cool bet stuff. there's some more FOSDEM stories in there too. Uh, yep. Some recap of uh, what happened at FOSDEM cool. and uh, lots of other news, including the FreeBSD quarterly status report, uh, which was the longest one ever of all the cool stuff that happened in FreeBSD in the last quarter of last year. Check it out, BSC uh, now A lot of it is, uh, you know, work that will be finished in time for 10.3 or 11, and uh, lots of cool stuff going on there. That is fancy, 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 fancy. Great work uh, from the BSC Now crew, as always. And uh, you guys can go get the HD version of that, so that way, when this show wraps up, it'll be ready for you. Because we're about the midway point in the TechSnap program, so it'll be a good chance yep. to start uh, your next Alan Jude uh, marathon. And uh, <laughs> you can find it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the news all done, it's just time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe like a ninja starting a thread at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, our first email this week comes in from a geeky guy. Uh, and he writes, hello, Alan and Chris. I'm an aspiring systems administrator, and I'm starting to build a home lab to learn on my own time, in addition to alongside classes I'm taking. So he's go- he's really going all in. Mm-hmm. I've been starting... I've been setting up and testing uh, visualizations on my desktop, but I'm looking to get some older refurbished server-grade equipment, he probably meant virtualizations, to try more things out that I can keep up all the time. So the advice I'd received thus far is to look on eBay for equipment such as Dell PowerEdge 1950s or 2950s, marked as free shipping that accept best offers. And some of my recommendations for 24 or 48-gigabit Cisco switches that can be managed via console port. Uh, in addition to this, I'm looking to get a PFSense box so I can get used to setting up that, and I have uh, a solid firewall to keep my home la- and have a solid firewall to keep my home and lab behind. I want to eventually have a mini FreeNAS to also get some experience with that and ZFS. 
I plan to try all different kinds of operating systems, Windows servers, Linux servers, and of course, FreeBSD. I would like to hear your recommendations on what I should get as well as where I should get it. My budget for the next few months is about $600 and probably another 1000 a few months after that. Thanks for the info you have time to provide. Sincerely, a geeky guy. So setting up a home lab. Yeah, um, I don't know what those Dells go for, but definitely you want to look at the age of the CPU because, you know, anything too old and you're wasting electricity by turning it on. <laughs> yeah, and especially if you want to play with virtualization. Yeah, it won't, basically they won't have the hardware virtualizations in the old CPUs. So uh, once you figure out what CPU it has, if you go to arc.intel.com, ark.intel.com, you can look up the CPU and see what features it has. And if it doesn't have you know, extended page tables and the virtualization stuff, you don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as equipment, um, in addition to eBay, there's unixsurplus.com, mm. which I've got some stuff from. It's not bad. Uh, they have things like um, a super micro machine with two Xeon L5420s. All right. So that's dual quad core 2.5 gigahertz, 16 gigs of RAM, the hard drive caddies, no hard drives included, and a single power supply and the rail kit for $299. Uh, and things like that. So, <laughs> you know, based on which generation of hardware you want, the prices change. I always prefer at least X8 or better hardware because mm. that's got all the features we use nowadays. Uh, but they even have, you know, X9 stuff at this point. I also would, uh, I mean, this is not a, this is not necessarily a plug for DigitalOcean, but I also would consider if you, when you want to just learn yeah, the software. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than buying hardware. You could just set up some VPSs and, uh, or droplets on DigitalOcean and play with the software. I'm not saying that is a, a replacement for hardware hands-on, but you will, you'll definitely only get so far with really old hardware, so definitely do that. And I would, I, if I were you, I would focus more on the switches and that hardware. Spend your money there. And when you want yeah. to learn software and management, maybe consider VPSs. But really, for, for even the switches and routers, you know, the Cisco simulation software will yeah. let you build a network with like five routers and ten switches or whatever in virtualization. In, in, not virtualization even, it's, it's a simulator. But, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've, you know, if you can get some Cisco hardware very cheap on eBay or whatever, sure. But I wouldn't want to spend, you know, $1,000 on a couple of old Cisco switches because... They're not useful. <laughs> and they're loud, and they're yeah. hot, and after yeah. a year or two, after you've gotten past this stage, they're going to be a pain in your butt. That's been my experience. But you know what? I also, <laughs> just ask Anne, there's someone in our closet uh, at her house that she does not like. Um, yeah. But good luck. I, I think it's a great endeavor either way. All right, so Micah writes in with ZFS on Western Digital Green Drive questions. Many thanks for the show, and awesome to meet Chris at scale this year. Hopefully we'll see you again next year, and they'll get the reservations right, which was funny. They totally messed up our reservation. I thought it was going to be for 20. Meanwhile, we had like 65 people there. It was, it was, he says, I have a pair of Western Digital Green Drives in storage, uh, in a storage server, that I maintain here at work, currently running Extended 4. I'd like to convert them to ZFS. But the interest seems to greatly, uh, the internet seems to greatly disagree about whether or not to run ZFS on these drives or not. I was hoping Alan could weigh in on the possible drawbacks about ZFS on these Western Digital Green drives. The main reason really seems to be that the drives have TLER enabled. Thanks, Micah. I'm guessing he means that TLER isn't there. But TLER, or Time Limited Error Recovery, just means that if the drive does have a problem, it will eventually give up instead of retrying forever, which is a good thing. 
So I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the green drives don't have that. You have to buy NAS drives to get that feature. I wonder. Uh, but so you can use green drives. It's not going to not work. Just green drives are slower than the regular drives, like the blues and the reds and so on. So if I was buying drives to do ZFS, I would buy better drives, like the NAS ones. The reds. But if I the had the greens laying around, there's no reason not to use so them, really. my Google in right now says that the greens do not have it. Yes. I'm quite sure that they do not. It says the reds have it and the greens do not. Yes. That which because would seem... Because reds are meant for, for it's a It's a file server feature. The greens yeah. are meant for saving power in, in desktops that don't use their hard drive very much. So and is this so a problem, the though? Greens are, the greens are slower because they have slower RPM, mm -hmm. and so they have fewer IOPS and, fewer, and less bandwidth. Right. So they'll be slow, but they're not going to not work. And the lack of TLER just means that you know, when there is a problem, the drive retires internally a lot more and doesn't give up after 30 seconds or whatever. So yeah. it can cause the system to perform really badly when a drive is failing. But in that case, the solution is replace the failing drive, not have TLER. It actually looks like, depending on the age of the green drive, there is a trick via firmware to turn it on. It's just disabled via uh, firmware. The newer green drives, you can't do that, it looks like, from uh, the thread I'm reading. So I've, I've, yes. Well, I wouldn't go doing messing around with that anyway. No. No, that's just a good excuse to replace the green drive when it, when it starts uh, also, to have issues. Also, yes, the uh, chat room points out that the green and, I don't know, maybe black drives... Uh, have a warranty that doesn't co cover you if you run them 24-7. Which is crap, because I run my computers 24-7, my desktops. Yes. yes, but those drives specifically, yep. the cheaper drives, yep. are designed for an eight-hour duty cycle, where yep. it's on for the eight hours while you're at the office, and then off overnight. Yes. Uh, and so they're only guaranteed to last the number of years they say on the box if you use them like that. If mm -hmm. you run them 24-7, they'll say, sorry, the drive, you've ran it for more than this many hours, which puts it outside of the warranty. Which is... And why no, they market the reds for uh, these workloads. Yes. That's why they can sell you the same drive with a different color on the label and charge you more money for it. That's wonderful. All right, we got a question on storage arrangement coming in from Francis. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. As a part of the working poor, I don't have a very fast-growing storage needs, but that also means I don't usually get to buy disks that are identical. Most of the time, their sizes can be orders of magnitude apart based on what is on sale. The last time I bought a hard drive, I got uh, one four terabyte drive off the off of a Black Friday sale, and then I got another one point five terabyte drive before that one, and another five hundred gigabyte drive before that. Even if I ended up with the discs that are the same size, they might be different brands, uh, platter arrangements, cache sizes, or even revisions. So here's my question. How would you guys arrange the storage under this kind of restriction? How much of a problem would it be if I used disks about the same size but different brand and arrangements in a multi-volume setting? Thanks right. in advance. So in, if you're looking at ZFS or whatever, uh, drives being different brands and so on is not a big deal. If they're very different performance, it means that you, you know, when you mirror drives, you get the worst performance out of the pair. So if you mirror, you know, a nice slow green with a nice fast red, then they're both going to perform like the green. But in general, it'll be okay. Uh, so with mixed mesh sizes, uh, pair them in the best reasonable way you can, and you'll get the size uh, or the capacity of the smallest drive. So, you know, put the 500 gig and the 1.5 terabyte together. Oh, okay. Or, or sorry, the 4 terabyte and the 1.5 together and the okay. 5 and some other thing together, and you'll get the smallest out of those. Yeah. Then... As you can afford, 
replace, say, the 1.5 terabyte drive with a second four, and now that part of the mirror will expand to use all four terabytes, or maybe only three if you can only get a three. And then maybe you replace, use that leftover 1.5 now to replace the smallest disk out of your 500 gig and, say, one gig, or 500 gig and one terabyte drive, you replace the 500 with 1.5, and now you have a 3 and a 4 together giving you 3, and a 1 and a 1.5 together giving you 1, so now you have 5 terabytes of usable space kind of thing. You know, there are things like the Drobo will try to get more, eke the last little bit of space out of that, but do you want that little bit of space at the sacrifice of the security of your data? <laughs> of having Probably to use it at the sacrifice of having to use a Drobo. <laughs> well, I just that, but there's, you know, there's always a chance that it's going to lose your data because it doesn't work right. And so, you know, biggest, I'd rather have less space. I think the biggest thing you need to keep in mind when you're going to use a Drobo is if the enclosure has an issue, your solution is to buy another enclosure, right? So that's a, and hope you can get an identical one that will be compatible. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ZFS, if the OS dies, you replace it. If you know, yeah, you, you just need another OS ZFS pool yeah. on FreeBSD, Illumos, SmartOS, uh, Linux, Mac, whatever. GNU slash Linux, all of those. No, not not GNU slash Linux. Only oh, regular okay. Linux. The GNU uh, one doesn't like the CDDL. And, so, Alan, there was a question that came into the show that was like, "Oh, come on! Everybody knows the answer to this." And I thought, "Well, I've never, I've never really heard an official stance, so maybe we'll, we'll ask Alan." Uh, so it comes in compiling ports as root. Uh, Hello, I recently signed up for a DigitalOcean droplet, and I'm having a blast. I made a FreeBSD droplet, and now I got a question for Alan. Would you say that compiling ports as root is a bad practice in general? I've heard nothing but compiling as root is bad, but I'm wondering. Also, what do you think of Portmaster for managing ports? Is that a safe solution? Thanks. Uh, Right, so, uh, you know, it's better to not, but it doesn't end up making that big of a difference. I, for example, compile my ports using Pudrier, uh, so it does each port in its own separate jail that doesn't have access to the internet. It does downloading in one phase and compiling in another phase, so the compile phase doesn't have access to the internet There must be some stage where it needs root privilege to write to some spots of the file system, right? The install phase requires root. But yes, you can do all the compiling is not root, and it's better. That is safer, but right? It doesn't make that big of a difference. And if yeah. you're really worried about it, <laughs> do the compiling in a jail. And, you know, Pudrier will do that for you, or you can do it manually. How's that spelled? Uh, Pudrier? Uh, it's spelled in French. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was like, it sounds like a... Well, all right. Uh, that... I, I, I couldn't think of the spelling. I had to type it, which I have in my finger memory. So it's P-O-U-D-R-I-E-R-E. Okay. <laughs> and it's the French word for powder keg or magazine where you keep all the explosives oh that's brilliant i love it that makes uh, a lot of sense the, the old build system was called tinderbox which is basically the same thing so, so is this in place of something like portmaster or does portmaster so portmaster is just a script that compiles ports for you uh it's mostly useful for updating ports uh it works uh although i've i've switched to pudrier because it's nicer and faster hmm. and it does in the jail yeah, and it does each, well, the reason it's faster is it, if you have to update 10 ports, or if you have to update 100 ports, it creates one jail for each CPU on your system and compiles one port in each one. That's awesome! Oh, that's uh, awesome! So it keeps all of the uh, all of your CPUs busy. So you whereas, can you can do multiple at a time then, essentially? Yes, oh. yeah, so it figures out the dependency stuff and does it. And so like when the, when the 50th port needs the second port as a dependency, it installs the package you've already compiled of it into the jail and does it. Uh, and it means that each one it avoids contamination 
because only the dependencies a program actually declares are installed in the jail when you compile it. So it doesn't accidentally link to some other app that maybe you installed. That's nice. Uh, well, it's very nice for the package building because it means that programs that will like will use stuff from X if you have it, but won't if you don't. Yeah, aren't undeclaredly pulling in bits of X yeah. because they happen to be available. Wow, that is really nice, and that's got to be you got to think that's going to be that's got to be become a more popular way to do that on FreeBSD. Well, yeah, well, yeah, uh, it, it works very nice, and it can remember your settings better than Portmaster. But Portmaster does work and is officially supported. Wow, I can't believe that it can build them all simultaneously in separate jails based on that. Is so cool. Yeah, well, so they did it because uh, normally you you can do like make with minus j to use multiple CPUs to compile one program, but you know there are parts where it doesn't do that, like when it's running the configure script and all this other stuff. So it turns out it's not that big of a, you know, it never is as good as having one jail for each CPU and trying to keep them all busy all the time. So his core question is, Portmaster safe? Yes, but it sounds yes. like there might be a better way to do it. But it might be nicer. Yeah, wow, that is really cool. Makes me totally Linux jelly. Telling you, Alan. Telling you, yeah. Alan. Well, the, the FreeBSD package manager does work on Linux. Yeah, I think... Although there's... Poudrier doesn't, because you don't have jails. But you could maybe use Linux jails to actually compile Linux. There's an NVIDIA driver for FreeBSD, right? Yes, an official one released in lockstep with the Windows driver. Huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, we want your emails, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or go over to the contacts page, choose techsnap from the dropdown or our subreddit. we got some more questions in there, but we'd like to get more. Uh, so all of them, anything related to these topics we've covered on the show, any questions you might have, you've heard, you've heard a sampling here, and probably many others if you listened to our feedback special last week. And we'd also kind of like to know what you think of that, if you want to let us know in the uh, subreddit comments or something like that, or on Twitter. You can tweet me, I'm at Chris LAS, and he over there is at Alan Jude. We'd like to know what you thought of the feedback special. It's not something we plan to do all the time, but at, since Alan and I do want to try to attend more in-person events, uh, it is a great opportunity to, to sometimes feature stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we want to do it in a way that you guys like it. So when we have an episode like that, it's something you actually want to watch or listen to. So your feedback is important on that. Okay, with the feedback segment all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. The Roundup are stories that just didn't fit towards the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Like this first one. I love this one. I love this one. So there was this big hype myth. We actually covered it for a couple of months at Unfilter about this ISIS encrypted messaging app, which turns out to be totally bogative. Uh, it turns out to be that it was actually like a... Uh, RSS reader apps they were showing screenshots of and <laughs> not doesn't exist at all. Yep. It was a bogus kind of like a cyber company that even reported the story to begin with. Pretty interesting. Yep. Pretty pretty bad, pretty bad, pretty bad. Uh, so yeah, there is no secret ISIS messaging app despite what was reported since December, including Or uh, it's a better secret than we thought. Uh, represent, Representative Michael McCall, the Homeland Security Department, went on the, the Wolf Blitzer program in December and talked about this and said it was, you know, a critical development in ISIS sophistication and then turns out to be totally bogus. And this is why they need to backdoor our crypto. Right. Moving on, sysadmins dispense with passwords with a banana. 
Yes. Banana. There's a link in there. You should, you, uh, I think it's the very first link. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So I see a banana going up to like uh, a device with an LCD screen on it. It looks like touches the like banana. Raspberry Pi, I think in there somewhere. Yeah. It looks like a Pi. Or banana pie. Something like that. Anyway, if you walk up and touch the banana, a Wi-Fi code will be displayed on the screen and then you can log into the Wi-Fi. Wow. This prevents people that aren't supposed to have the Wi-Fi from getting the Wi-Fi. Because they can't touch the banana. Yes. It could have been any, I mean, but a banana. I, yes, it was just, the, um, you know, it's that haptic touch thing. <laughs> and just you touching it completes the circuit. But So we have heard of Facebook cooling their servers in the snow. Microsoft, though, has a whole other take. How about cooling your servers at the bottom of the sea? That's Microsoft's new way. Uh, the company says its units can be built more quickly than typical data centers. Look at that. They even put a stupid window <laughs> on the side of that thing. They're sending down basically a tank, uh, a, an underwater data center, running actual IT equipment. It's small. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they also have those crate data centers, too, as well. So yes. this is... I, I was expecting, like, a waterproof shipping container being sunk. Yeah, yeah. But I guess they can't have a lot of air in it because it would float. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we're just a little crazy. Look at that with Microsoft on the side there. That is okay, that's so funny. not quite as small as it originally looked. Yeah, it does look like it's decent size. There it goes. They send it down, and it's cooling down there. They have an, This is a prototype. So instead of pumping water around the data center, the data center just is in the water. <laughs> that's what they say. They did it right off the off the Pacific coast here. <laughs> yes, because you know what we need is to heat up the ocean more. <laughs> right? Yeah, there's like little heaters to put in the ocean. Just little heaters. But now you know what? Well, we won't have to burn fossil fuels cooling them. So mm. you win some, you lose some. Yeah, we just cool them naturally here in Canada. No. Oh. Hmm. Tell me about Lost Pass. What's this? Uh, so this is a new phishing attack against LastPass. Oh boy! Uh, so they actually managed to. Uh, make something that would be very, very convincing as if this was your LastPass login dialogue. But Jeez, are these screenshots isn't. of it here? Yes. That looks identical. Mm-hmm. I would fall for that. Yep. Huh. But you should read more about it, especially if you use LastPass and okay. so on. Uh, I don't know if it's related, but I got an email from LastPass the other day that they're changing their logo and what the button looks like when you... Uh, Giving you a heads up. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's good of them. Hey, how about this? At least, uh, at least I'm hoping this is true. Krebs is reporting on it. You probably all heard it this week. The word is is that Oracle is going to be spinning down the Java plugin. Of course, not too surprising since browsers. Well, and are, yeah, browsers have been blocking it for a while now. <laughs> and and like uh, Chrome is deprecating the uh, Netscape plugin API altogether. Yeah. Um, so basically, you will. Most things you use will still just work, especially like say the remote management thing on your Dell, because they use what's called Java Web Start, where in the browser what you do is you download a little shortcut uh-huh. file, uh-huh. and then Java runs that on your desktop instead of in the browser, which is better because it doesn't crash your browser when Java screws up. Uh, but basically, it's how we should have been doing it the whole time anyway, for Java. Good point. So uh, if your boss uh, comes to you... Because it, it runs as a separate application, and so it also means there's well, usually now there's like four levels of prompt. Like, it pops up a file you download, and then you have to run that, which, you know, you configure it so it happens automatically or whatever. But then it has, you know, two or three security warning things that pop up. So you have plenty of time to block it. So you're not going to get drive-by ads and so on. So, yes. So you can tell you can tell your boss everything's going to be okay. You're not, you're not all going to break. Um, also, tell them to stop uh, trying to uh, save a bunch of money on uh, cheap webcams. Spend a little more and get the nice webcams. Uh, well, this one's not about the cheapness of the webcam, really. 
But uh, this, you know, I took a $30 D-Link webcam uh, and uh, tore it apart and got access to the firmware and figured out that it's you know embedded Linux, as you might expect, and then hack slash root, and now it's a... Yeah, yeah, to be clear, it's one of those Wi-Fi ones. So it's yes. like it's just a cheap Wi-Fi webcam. It's like it's you know bottom yes. of the barrel, and but it's, it's got a little embedded, overly old version of Linux in it, and uh, you can you know repackage it, backdoor it, and now I have a way into your network. It runs Telnet. You got to be kidding me. Yep, Telnet and BusyBox. <laughs> uh, the main reason <laughs> is it turns out that all the libraries required by SSH make it kind of big. Doesn't fit on an eight meg flash card. Ah, uh, well, there's that. All right, tell me about this Nest story. It's a Nest outage, ah. Alan. Yes. So Nest, the fancy thermostats mm-hmm. for your home, mm-hmm. used the cloud to do things and mm-hmm. store things and so on. And they had a bit of an outage, which resulted in people waking up and their houses being freezing. No, the thing doesn't go into like some sort of local default mode. Apparently not. I don't know. <laughs> Read the story. <laughs> wow, yeah, go check it out. Glad I don't have one of those. Wow, no connectivity, time off, dead battery, wouldn't turn on. Wow. Ah, yes, it was uh, the, some software update that got pushed into it that maybe users didn't get asked if they wanted, and it killed the battery, and then it died. <laughs> That's ah, pretty So, yes, if the battery dies, then the thing turns off, and then you get no heat. Oh, that, that's no good. I'm glad mine doesn't use batteries. This is why you should live underground. I love these tunnels. The rise and the fall of the tunnel rat king. Look at this thing. Right. So this story is not mostly, uh, mostly not about uh, what you would think. So it's by uh, the Grug, who's a security research guy. We've talked about he's on Twitter a lot. Uh, and he mostly is talking about the story of this uh, Mexican drug cartel mm. operator guy in as lessons on how to do security properly hmm. uh, and basically showing why this guy got caught because he failed to you know take security seriously i like that you know, he did a bunch of things right and did a bunch of things really really <laughs> bad and that's how he got caught yeah and so this breaks it all down and explains how it starts off with like how much trouble the cops had getting him and how they eventually did get him and so on huh. i had recently heard about that too so it's kind of Yes. Uh, well, it turns out uh, doing a, an interview with, uh, who was it? Some famous celebrity. Um, yeah. Oh, I did hear about this. Yes. I don't remember the names now, but now I know what you're talking about. Yes. <clears throat> anyway, the drug kingpin did an interview with yes. a celebrity because the celebrity is going to play him in a movie or something. And it resulted in him being in a place, uh, you know, having an appointment, basically. So the government knew he was going to be here at this time or whatever. Yeah. Sean Penn. Uh, it was Sean Penn, yes. Yeah. And uh, basically, they managed to uh, track him, follow him, and, and bust him. Something else. Uh, Alan, the TechSnap program always recommends you use extra protection, like LSA protection. Yeah, so this is a local security authority thing for Windows. And basically, it's a bunch of extra settings you can possibly turn on to lock down uh, the security of the Windows uh, the local service. Local security, so specifically? Uh, well, yeah. It's, well, LSA is just the name of the the service that runs on the computer. Uh-huh. Uh, and this will possibly help uh, avoid rogue plugins and drivers and stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it looks specifically like it helps with stuff that attaches to the kernel, which would be yeah. very good, very good. Yeah, so extra security lockdown stuff. Interesting. When a group of hackers sought to steal iTunes passwords from Apple customers in France, they didn't spam the entire country. They sent out just 5,000 emails to French-speaking targets containing links to fake login pages. Email spam uh, goes artisanal. 
Yes, so uh, Talos, the Cisco security group, yeah. uh, identified this one, what they call snowshoe spam. <laughs> uh, so it's not spear phishing, but it's not your regular bulk spam. It's spamming just small enough a group of people that you won't make enough noise to get on the blacklists. So I guess if you're going to be really hyper-targeted, you kind of have to make sure you got something that has good grammar and proper sentence structure, and you uh, partly yes, because you're you want your your higher hit rate ratio is going to make an yeah. improvement there. Yeah, huh. interesting artisanal spam. I like it. And what did he call it again? What did you say? Snowshoe. Snowshoe. Spam. Okay. All right. Well, let me tell you about this casino right here. This is this, uh, this casino is suing a security firm for failing to contain the malware infection. Now, how is that even reasonable? So, uh, Affinity Games hired Trustware Holdings to do their cybersecurity. And oh, then uh-huh. the cybersecurity firm failed to actually stop the malware from spreading in their network uh, like they were being paid to do. Womp womp. Uh, so, you know, it seems like they maybe had overpromised. Uh, if no. Who wins the lawsuit will de- mostly come down to exactly what the security company promised to do. I'll tell you what went wrong is uh, Trustwave just didn't have the right disclaimer in their contract saying, hey, look, sometimes malware be crazy. We can't stop all infections. Right. Antivirus uh, isn't perfect. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, if they promised more than anybody else in order to get the customers and <laughs> didn't deliver on it. Then. Yeah. Yeah. The last days of Target. The untold tale of Target's Canada, Canada's difficult birth through life and the brutal death. Is Target not in Canada? Yes, so Target came to Canada uh, and lasted about a year and a bit and then failed. And <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yes. <laughs> I guess actually uh, I did. I know I think about it. I suppose I did. But <laughs> so, so they bought a store here, including all of its like 113 locations and turned them all into Targets and failed miserably. Uh, but if you actually go in and read the story, it turns out almost all of their problems were related to enterprise software. No the way, program- really? The programs that they had to uh, track their inventory and take and deal with, like shipping it between their different locations, uh, was totally crap. And and they, so they they got sold a solution based on SAP. Yeah. And uh, they would get bogus data put in it, and like you know it would have the wrong weight for something, and then they'd be like, oh, we can't ship it because the truck's too heavy now, or the wrong size. And it's like, well, it says that you should be able to fit a hundred of these on the shelf, and it doesn't. <laughs> And a bunch of things like that, um, and also their um, their uh, point of sale systems for like the self checkouts. Turned out those were all buggy and didn't work properly, and so nobody could pay for the stuff. Or worse, uh, people would go do the self checkout. It would look like it charged their credit card, but in the back end, it maybe had failed. And then people legitimately left the store having paid for stuff, but the store never got any money. Wow, Target owes its vendors three point four billion. They're in a tough spot now after this. Uh, so anyway, you should definitely check out the story if if you've ever uh, wanted to see how Ooh. bad the software can be implemented. Ooh. Yeah, yikes, yikes. Hey, good news about Windows Ten. It's embracing silicon innovation. It kind of uh, basically, uh, you know, Skylake will be supported by Windows Seven, but everything after that will only be supported by whatever's the newest version of Windows at the time. Oh. So if you want to use a newer processor, you're going to have to upgrade. So what? What when they say Windows 10 is embracing silicon innovation, what they're what really they saying is we're not supporting it on anything older. But what specifically, what updates specific? So the, it's not like Windows 7 wouldn't work on 
Skylake plus one, what it really is is if you call in and ask for support, they're going to be, oh, sorry, we don't support you. Probably a bit of that, and obviously it won't use any new features that sure, uh, yeah. Silicon. Uh, but I'm guessing, you know... That is a weasel way to get hard. out of supporting Windows, though. Yeah. It basically means that Windows 7 doesn't have the support life that they actually say it does. Unless you buy old hardware. Yeah, which then makes it more likely to be unreliable. Um, I don't know how this will apply to corporate users, because I can definitely see, if you're a big corporation, you constantly buying more machines, but you'd like to have a certain, a stable certain version of Windows, right? Yeah, um, but, well, Microsoft doesn't write drivers for most of this stuff, so I don't know if Microsoft wants to deal with backporting drivers, but, yeah, I don't know exactly what their motivation is, but something. <laughs> Look how they write this. Compared to Windows 7 PCs, Skylake, Skylake, when combined with Windows 10, enables up to 30x better graphics and 3x battery life. They're comparing it to Windows 7 PCs. It's like they're... Well, Yes. So now, did they mean Windows Seven on the same Skylake, or no? I don't think so. What was what was new when you bought Windows Seven? I think that's what they're comparing it, it to. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Which is crap. Uh, I don't. This is really something. All right. Well, link in the show notes if you guys want to read more about it. Instead, Alan, can you tell me about secret SSH backdoors in the Fortinet? Is that yes, how you say Fortinet it? is a. They make routers and mm. security appliances, kind of like a Cisco. Mm. And yes, if you thought Cisco's the only one with SSH backdoors. No, no. If you Juniper out. was the only one with SSH backdoors, no. An undocumented account with a hard-coded password came to light last week when a tack code explaining that backdoor was posted online. <laughs> Yay for hard-coded passwords and user accounts built into At the firmware. At least when Juniper found it, they found it themselves yeah. uh, and didn't tell anybody until it was fixed. That's and true. This one, it was being actively exploited on the internet, and then they were like, oh, sorry about that. Oof. Patches are out for certain devices. Uh, if you want to look quickly, we have the screen. Them yeah. Keep looking and fun times. Oh, sorry to hear about that, users. Anyways, let's talk about uh, you know things that could cost you millions of dollars potentially, like backdoors in Bitcoin wallets. What's this one about? Yes. Yeah, so some Bitcoin trading website apparently just bought their wallet software from some guy, and he had a backdoor <laughs> in it where he made an IRC bot that he could just give commands and. He just made off with Some five million dollars. Some guy is like, hey, yeah, lucky, lucky seven coin developer. Yeah, hmm. and he made off with was like thirteen thousand bitcoins, which was about five million dollars, uh, and a whole bunch of litecoins as well, uh, like three hundred thousand litecoins, and dumped them all on the market at once, causing the price of litecoin to drop by like eighty percent or something like that. Amazing, that is great. The backdoor code uh, was posted on March eighth, twenty fifteen. Yeah, so the the site uh, Cryptsy puts out a uh, bounty of a thousand bitcoins for information leading to uh, finding the guy who did it. Which seems weird because it seems obvious that it's the developer of the software they used. But Yeah, and I guess, it, yeah, and the code's been around for a while. So a thousand bitcoins, what's that in, in, um, in, in actual money right now? Do you know? What's the bitcoin? I'm, I'll go look at bitcoinaverage.com right now. I haven't checked it for a little while. Bitcoin average, uh, uh, 390 bucks right now is the, is the average. So... Right. So that'd be four hundred thousand dollars. Five hundred and thirty-eight uh, Canadian dollars. Mm -hmm. Damn, that is a huge difference in <laughs> holy yeah. crap! Uh, wow, the dollar has actually been going back up the last couple of weeks. Hmm. The last week, anyway. Good. Uh, it was worth like each U.S. dollar was a dollar forty-two Canadian. Now it's like a dollar thirty-seven. All right, to uh, round up the round up, our last couple stories are fun ones. We have one yes. from Twitter. Uh, finally, a clear graphical explanation of. Hashtag geek productivity patterns. 
And uh, this is looking legit here. Yeah, so the first one is, you know, geeks being productive, uh, and then there's a five-minute interruption, so their productivity goes down, and then they pick back up, and it's fine. Yes. But really, this is what it would look like. Yeah, the, that is really great. Uh, we'll have a link if you guys are listening, but it's it shows peaks at, uh, I like noon, at, uh, yeah, how non-gangs think it works drops way down. Of course, noon just drops down a little bit, but then at 2 o'clock, it almost drops off the map. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's a giant spike that goes up at like 11. two in the morning. Yeah, at eleven and uh, and at three and yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, Alan, and then we have one more here that uh, at least yeah, don't don't say what it is. Just show the picture. Okay, I revealing now. So you look at the picture and it looks like oh somebody just measured the uh, the amount of snow they got in the big snowstorm the other week in beer beer bottles. Yeah, and then there's something beside it, whatever. But then if you look very closely. You'll see that that measuring thing there is measuring the snow in U's, as in rack units. <laughs> so they got uh, 15 U's of snow. <laughs> that should be a thing. 15 U's of snow. That should be a thing. Look at that. That's a great way to do it. I like that it's a cold snap. Makes me think of tech snap. I should have cold snap Sam Adams while we're doing tech snap. Bring it all together. Sure. All right. So that was the roundup. You can submit to the roundup by going to techsnap.reddit.com. Um, and uh, post your pictures of beer in the snow. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, we'd love to have you join us live over jblive.tv. Like we mentioned earlier, we do this show on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Yep, exactly. And don't forget, we have RSS feeds. So you get the show automatically when a new episode comes out. So that way you don't even have to worry about it if you just want to get it on demand. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 